This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And look who's coming up. All year long, they look to him to light the fire. And all year long, he answered the demands until he was physically unable to start tonight with two bad legs. The bad left hamstring and the swollen right knee. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Sacks waiting on deck. But the game right now is at the plate. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions Podcast. My name is Mike Petriello. I'm a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, August 4th. You will not be surprised to learn that we are going to have to talk about the trade deadline and all the insanity that happened there. Uh, we're going to, you know, once we get past that, kind of dig into three teams that really interested us. And we're going to end our show as we always do with a pair of guys you should know more about, which I'm very excited about because Matt refuses to tell me who his guy is. Usually, like, we have a little bit of uh, something in advance, so I have absolutely no idea where this is going to go. I can't wait. I'm sorry to say that we do have to start off with the unfortunate news that Vin Scully uh, has passed away. I don't think this was terribly surprising given that we didn't see him at the All-Star game in L.A. You know, first game there in 40-plus years. You could imagine all the opportunities there. Uh, 94 years old. I don't think that either one of us, Matt, are really kind of equipped to fully encapsulate kind of the greatness. I mean, you've seen all the stories of the last couple of days. I grew up a Dodger fan, but not a West Coast Dodger fan. So I missed the first 56 years of his career before I finally got a full season of Vin Games, which, as I've said, is why I loved the wretched 2005 Dodgers who lost 91 games, because it was the first time I got to hear Vin every day. And I saw one, there was this one comment on Twitter that I thought was perfect. It was from someone named Jake. It was like, one of the reasons Vin was so great is because despite how much the game changed over his his career, he never complained about it. Like the guys who are now talking about, well, back in my day, well, Vin's day was like 40 years before their day. And he never did that. And I always loved that about him. And as I was talking to you yesterday, uh, it turns out you have like kind of a Vin connection we didn't even know about. Indeed I do. And I'm sort of ashamed of myself for not, not knowing this fact earlier um basically so i was i was you know reading some of the the obituaries of, of vin and i saw a couple that mentioned that he grew up in washington heights which is a neighborhood in new york city that i grew up in and i knew he had gone to fordham and fordham prep so i assumed he had grown up in the bronx he was born in the bronx but as it turns out he grew up in washington heights which i thought was pretty cool and i was like i mentioned this to mike and mike was, and mike was like do you know where and i was like no i did a little googling couldn't find it mike is obviously better at googling than I am, because within like four seconds, he discovered <laughs> that not only did Vince Scully grow up in Washington Heights, he grew up like a stone's throw from the building that I grew up in, <laughs> which is like pretty wild, obviously not at the same time, but it's like I had no idea my entire life that Vince Scully grew up literally three blocks from where I grew up, which is pretty cool. And now I'm excited 
to go and check out the building. I doubt if there's any even recognition that Vin Scully grew up there, but uh, I was pretty excited to discover this and also excited to tell my father about this because he is a huge baseball fan, got me into baseball. I knew he would appreciate that. And that actually brings me to my second sort of Vince Scully story, which is my only like sort of real personal interaction with him. And it wasn't even like face to face. It was at a an event at the winter meetings like 15, 20 years ago. I can't remember what year and I can't remember what the event was. I think it was like the scout of the year dinner and, and Vin was the keynote speaker. And I remember vi- vividly the story he told it was about like when he played for the Fordham baseball team and how excited he was the first time he did something cool. And he was so excited to see his name in the paper. And the next day he like opened up the paper and under the photo caption, it said like Ben Tully hit a double for Fordham to drive in two runs. Like, and like how they got his name just slightly, like slightly wrong. And like how it was such a humbling experience for him. And I remember it for two reasons. One of which is that like, this is probably a story he told at like the banquet circuit, like, dozens of times over the years but he told it in such a way that you felt like you were hearing it for the first time and that was sort of like part of his charm and I remember after the the dinner wanting to tell my grandfather about it and my grandfather passed a few years earlier and it just like made me realize like part of another part of Vin's appeal is he's like truly like generation like everyone loves him it's not like you know you listen to music and your parents hate the music you listen to and vice versa it's like no everyone like loves Vin. Like there are a few things in the world that have like a more positive, if you did like, you know, one of these like focus groups, like a positive association or negative association, like who doesn't love Vin Scully? And like, there's just something about that that's so hard to achieve and just speaks to his legacy. Yeah, even Giants fans yesterday in the last couple of days were like, oh my God, not Vin Scully. Like you're right, universal. I never had the good fortune to meet him, but I remember one time I was at the uh, Dodgers spring training. This is after they moved to Arizona. So this is maybe like 2012 or 13. It was near the end of his career. And most, you know, major league, all major league ballparks, fans can't get to or see the press level, right? You got to go through elevators. You got to have credentials. You can't do it. But at spring training parks, really, the press level, for the most part, it just kind of like elevated. And there's like a set of stairs you walk up and you can see like behind the doors. And he, I can't remember if he was calling the game or not, but he was there with, I I believe, his wife. And um, the fans just like wandering the concourse could see him open the door and like walk towards the stairs. And all of a sudden, like 10,000 people like rush just to wave at him and say hi. And he waved back. And it's like, you know, you and I both, I think, might have met enough cool people that we don't get starstruck. But that was a moment where I was like, oh, wow, that's Vince Scully. That's super cool. I'm 100 feet away. I'm not even going to get to go talk to him. But that's cool. I'm glad I was able to do that. So a sad day. Uh, obviously, um, but it, it's it is hard to say there are lives better lived than that with more of an impact on more people. And uh, well, I guess it does feel kind of weird to go and start talking about trades. I mean, that is that's the story now, right? Like we had some pretty incredible trades the last couple of days. Hey, did the Padres do anything? Um, my, here's my favorite part. I was watching the Padres game last night and everybody's like, Juan Soto, Juan Soto. And Josh Bell's really good. It, who hit the grand slam yesterday? It was Brandon Drury. <laughs> who they got from the Reds in a deal that absolutely nobody noticed. Um, He's not the headliner here. I still, a couple of days later, am sitting here and I I cannot get it through my head that the Padres have acquired Juan Soto. It's like a fever dream. I don't believe the Nationals actually traded him and that some other team has him now. And I don't know if you saw the smile on his face last night. He seemed pretty stoked. And I think the Padres are going to be pretty happy for the rest of the year. I mean, you were were in San Diego last week and you were like, yeah, the place was popping. I was talking to AJ Casavell, our Padres reporter last week, and he was just like, 
there's one, you know, there's one, you know, major sports team in San Diego right now, right? And San Diego just is like all in on the Padres. Like they, he said, they have two sports talk radio shows and all they do is talk Padres. It's like almost hard to fathom. So yeah. it's, it's pretty cool that it's just like this like convergence of, you know, city, you know, obviously front office and owner that is aggressive about wanting to win and like put like a great roster on the field. And, you know, they, there's there's the part of me that's kind of like the curmudgeon that's like, well, they haven't won anything yet. And it's like, you know what? That's true. The flip side is like they have an exciting team. Fernando Tatis Jr. hasn't even played yet this year. And like if that trade is on the table, you make that trade 100 times out of 100. So like good for them for doing it. They are, according to baseball reference numbers, uh, up to 1.95 million in attendance. That is fourth in the National League. It's almost up to what they had for all of last year already. Because you're right. When I was there, they were playing the Twins. Who... I was about to say who in San Diego cares about the Twins, but the truth is like half of Minnesota was there. I can't tell you how many different Twins jerseys I saw walking around the town, including the one guy who had a Twins jersey that was for Kevin Slowey, but in brown and gold, like Padres brown and gold, but for the Twins, which I have several questions. I regret not not asking about them. The, the thing I keep coming back to with the Padres is we could spend conservatively 10 hours just talking about Juan Soto. And what I keep coming back to is, hey, they massively improved first base. Like Eric Hosmer, we've talked about him a few times. Josh Bell is really good. What I want more than anything is I want someone to interview Luke Voigt because Luke Voigt was probably for like an hour so stoked. It's like, oh my God, I get to hit in the lineup behind like Juan Soto. Oh, and Eric Hosmer's going to be gone. That's more first base time for me. Uh, Luke, would you come over here for a second? Uh, Eric Hosmer's declined to go to Washington. You're going to Washington. Oh no, that's like the worst turnaround. <laughs> the other, the other big thing they did that didn't get really any attention because of all this is they signed Joe Musgrove to a contract extension. Joe Musgrove was going to be a free agent this year. Arguably, could have been the best pitcher on the market. He's having a great year. He signed for like, pro- I mean, he's from San Diego, probably a little bit of a hometown discount, quote unquote. But he got a no trade clause as part of it. So like, good for him for basically being like, hey, this is my team. This is where I want to be. Maybe I'm going to get a little less than I'm going to get in the open, could have gotten on the open market, but like, I want to make sure that I get to stay here because this is the team I want to be on. I mean, there are questions about, you know, if you want to like not quibble with it. I mean, the challenge for the Padres is that like, even with the team they have now, they're probably going to be in a wild card game where they have to go play three road games in Atlanta or New York, which is like a pretty tough spot. And then this offseason, they're going to have a bunch of free agents and not a lot of, pro- you know, not a lot of minor league depth to like compensate for it but like you know what like this is a great team this is an exciting team and i'm really interested to see how it plays how it plays out i have i have two padres questions for you um the first is do you remember the other guy they got that we haven't even talked about oh josh Hader. oh josh Hader. right also they got josh Hader. that guy who that will get i think back to the brewers in a minute because that was really confusing here's a second question for you who is a better team for the remainder of the season, the Dodgers or the Padres? It's a good question. Um, it's close. It is close with that, like the way some of these, the, some of the guys in the Dodgers lineup just having sort of like eh, years. Like you keep waiting for Max Money kind of get 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 Max Muncy to kind of get going a little bit, and it's just not happening. I mean, you kind of it's hard to not instinctively just be like the Dodgers. I mean, even now they're what like seventy one and thirty three. And they now have the best record in baseball. Well, that's that's the past. So the, the, the Padres are behind by 11 and a half games. They have almost no shot. But if you were to look at the Fangraphs rest of season projections, they are essentially tied to like percentage points, which I think like 
Oh yeah, I'll buy it. Like the Padres' big problem was other than Machado, they had no slug, and now they've got three guys who can slug. Like it's a much better team. Oh, and Tatis might come back. It's close. That's what I'm saying. It's close. It's hard to. My point. It's like the Dodgers have been so good for so long. It's hard to kind of bet against them. And if they ended up in a playoff series, that would be something. Um, but it probably would not happen until I guess the the way it's lining up is it wouldn't happen until the DS because that's the other thing. It's like in some ways you might be better off being the second seed in the National League because the second seed gets to face the winner of NL Central three seed versus the six seed wild card, whereas the number one seed is going to face the winner of Padres versus Braves or Mets. The, the, the funniest outcome here, I don't think it'll happen, uh, would be if the Padres can manage to get the first wild card spot, which I don't think they will, but it, it's possible. And then the first round of the playoffs is them at Milwaukee with Josh Hader. And I think that would be extremely funny. I wanted to ask you an Eric Hosmer question. I haven't seen anybody bring this up. And maybe that I should take that as meaning it's a bad point that I shouldn't even bring up. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, Hosmer went to, I think, one of the only two or three teams that had actually made sense. Right? Like first base in Boston's been an absolute train wreck this year. The Padres are paying off like almost the entirety of the rest of his salary. So three years and 39 million remaining. The Red Sox will get him for the minimum. I'm not a huge Hosmer fan, but for that price, like, fine, wonderful. What people, I think, forget about the contract, though, is when he signed it with San Diego, eight years, 144 million. The final three years, which starting next year, uh, are an opt-in or an opt-out, however you choose to look at it, right? Three years, 39 million. He is almost certainly going to do that because he's not going to match that in the open market. But I, everybody's just sort of assuming that that's like 100% a guarantee. And I'm just, I'm trying to wonder, is there a chance that he doesn't just in the sense of he's obviously made a great deal of money and no one's going to leave money on the table necessarily. But what if he says, I don't really like it here. I'd rather go play in Miami where he's from, or I'd rather go play, I don't know, Kansas City or whatever. And I think I can get two years and 12. Is it, is this even like a possibility he might consider not staying there? I don't, I can't read his mind. I would say... The thing is, like, it's hard. The reality is kind of what you said is that no, if he opts out, he's going to end up on like a, a non-contender looking for like a quote-unquote name player to sort of hey, like we're kind of trying here. And those are the I mean, Kansas City makes a ton of sense, although they now no, they, they're, they have they, two they, better they, first baseman. I was going to say no, <laughs> Kansas City makes sense from the nostalgia standpoint. Not no, they have Prado and your boy Pasquantino. That's not going to happen. I guess Miami because that's where he's from, but. I, it's hard to imagine he, he opts out for the reason, reasons you mentioned. All right, there's, there's a couple other trade deadline things I want to get to. Obviously, we could spend hours and hours going through every trade. We're not going to do that. We're going to get to three teams later on in our three better minimum segment. Um, the first one I want to talk about is is the Brewers quickly because they traded away Hater in a deal that made very little sense at the time, and then they DFA'd to Nelson Lamette, which was super weird. And then Devin Williams, who had a 30-game scoreless streak, uh, blew the game last night on a walk-off home run to Brian Reynolds. And boy, did that all take a turn. And I'm like, I'm trying to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt because there are some things about Hater I don't love. And like, I trust Milwaukee when it comes to pitching. And I think they can make whichever Rodgers it was, Taylor. I think it was Taylor better. Uh, but I, you know, they're a first place team trading one of the five or so most dominant relievers who ever lived. And they got back, you know, an outfield prospect who's got 80 speed and maybe 10 power. And I say that knowing the scouting scale only goes to 20. And I said 10 anyway. Um, What's happening right now? (laughs) I kind of hate this trade for Milwaukee. I mean, in a vacuum, it's probably like in a vacuum, you could certainly defend it. And I always try to I always try to look at all these trades. It's like these are smart people running these teams who care deeply about what they're trying, trying to do and 
are, have access to a lot more information than we do. So I always like want to put that out here before I do any more of my trade takes. It's just like, there's a certain part of it that's like the Brewers identity is so tied up in Hayter and Williams at the end of games. And you play the Brewers, it's like, oh, like if we're not winning after seven, like we're in trouble. And there's a psychology to that that's gone. Like just Taylor Rogers just doesn't have that same kind of, even if you could say that, oh, he might like match his Hayter's numbers, the psychology is gone. Like there's that, that, that edge is gone. Um, And I also think there's like part of it, like I think, you know, trying to, that, that, you know, yeah, there's 20% of Brewers fans who are hardcore, who understand, like, you know, free agency and arbitration and options and, you know, payroll and all these things. And there's 80% of fans who are looking at this being like, wait, what's going on? Like, what? Like, we trade Hater for guys I've never, never heard of? And, like, I'm not sure these guys are... It's just... There's just something that I just I just don't really like. The one thing I will say in defense of this that I think is interesting that I hadn't fully realized is how rigid... Hater's usage had become because like yes. he had this reputation a few years ago of being like, Hey, he's like this multi-inning weapon. He'll come in. And like, he'd become like the most capital C closer in baseball, basically only pitching the ninth inning with leads, like one inning at a time. So like to that extent, he maybe made himself a little less valuable to Milwaukee, but like, it's one of those that just like leaves me feeling a bit hollow. Yeah, I agree. I think the best thing that happened to Milwaukee at the deadline here was that St. Louis didn't do that much either. You know, like I like Jordan Montgomery, Jose Quintana, like whatever, it's fine. Uh, did you realize the Reds are in third place in that division right now? <laughs> By the way, after they started three and twenty-two, and also just dismantled their team. <laughs> yeah, it's funny to see like all of the Reds succeeding for you know Seattle now. All right, I want to talk about the Astros for a second. It is extremely funny to me that after Trey Mancini lost at least five home runs because of the new dimensions of Camden Yards uh, in his, I think, first start in Houston, he hit a ball that was a home run in Houston but would not have been a home run in Camden Yards. Like, that's perfect. I love that. He makes a ton of sense. Yuli Gurriel's had a pretty lousy year. Michael Brantley's been out for, like, six weeks. Nobody seems to know when or if he's coming back. Uh, So Mancini makes a ton of sense there. They also traded for... Uh, a reliever in Will Smith, who's pretty good. They got rid of, like, they had so many starters. Jake Odorizzi was probably their weakest, so they flipped him to Atlanta. And uh, Christian Vasquez from the Red Sox, I have no idea what the Red Sox are doing, like, at all. I, I have a friend who works in a front office, uh, and they sent a note to me that said, Red Sox are great for morale. We just kind of all laughed and sink in our offices right now, which tells you a lot about how the Red Sox are viewed at the moment. Uh, Vasquez it was weird because he was taking BP on the field in Houston. And when I explained how that was a thing to my wife, it like blew her mind that that was like a thing that could actually happen. Uh, it makes sense because Martin Maldonado, you know, is not a great hitter, but mostly because Jason Castro is out for the year and there are no waiver claim trades to be had. So you either get your backup now or you don't. And all it takes is one foul tip and they had no catchers. So I like that. A lot. I think Houston had a pretty solid deadline. Yeah, I mean, it, Mancini is such a perfect fit. You know, obviously, Homer's in the first game. It's like, okay, this is a perfect fit. Similar to Hater, that kind of left me a bit hollow from the Orioles' perspective. Although, I, I learned this morning while doing some research for this pod that the Orioles have the toughest remaining schedule, according to Fangraphs. Um, so, I thought that was interesting. It might have played a fact, a, a bit of factor in the way they approached the deadline. They got a lot of heat for trading away players while they're in, in the, still in the race. Yeah. And, they just swept, and they just and they just swept Texas. Um it left me a little hollow, I got to say, because I'm not really sure they, what they're they getting get The Lopez traded in like two months of Mancini, like whatever. He's not going to meaningfully change their hunt for October here. 
I guess, but you finally have your fans excited about the team again for the first time in forever, and he is the fan favorite. Like, there's got to be something to be said for that. Uh, I mean, they didn't, like, tear it down completely. If they did that, no. and they also traded Mullins, and they traded, like, Hayes, and all, then I'd be super with you. And like I said, I didn't, Lopez is two and a half years left, so I didn't like that. I think whatever is going to happen with the O's for the rest of the year, it, his absence, Mancini's absence, is not going to meaningfully change that. And like you said, they just swept the Rangers. It's not like they're falling apart now. <laughs> No, not at all. I mean, it was interesting also that, like, you know, their GM, Michael Elias, went on, immediately, like, hopped on a plane, basically, to kind of do damage control, like, show yeah. to the park, and, like, went to talk to the veterans that are left on the team, being like, hey, here's what we're thinking. Like, he also basically said, like, this starts now, like, we're spending this offseason, we're going all in, like, I thought it was interesting that, like, there, there's now some... There's going to be some public pressure on the Orioles to do some splashy things this offseason. I, I think they will. I mean, I, I still plan to write at some point about how they're like the 2014 Cubs now. And what did the 2014 Cubs do? They went out and signed John Lester. Like, they they did things, right? Uh, have you noticed that the Yankees have been a 500 team for six weeks uh, after a win against the Blue Jays on June 18th? At that point, they'd won 16 out of 17. They were 49 and 16. Now, I should clarify this. Nobody expected them to keep that pace up. They were not going to win 125 games this year. Of course, they're going to play worse. But since then, they are 21 and 20. They basically played the same as the White Sox have for six weeks. I don't think this is necessarily indicative of anything other than they were not going to keep up that pace. But now they sort of feel like the team that we thought they were going to be at the beginning of the season, right? Like they're kind of playing that way. And then one of the most confounding moves of the whole deadline was they traded Jordan Montgomery for Harrison Bader. And I like Bader a lot. He's a really good outfielder. He went to school in the Bronx, but he's hurt. And I assume they're going to get him back. If, if, if not, that trade looks like a disaster because the Yankees don't have a lot of starting depth right now. That was a strange trade, um, especially with Bader hurt. And they just gotten Frankie Montas basically because they were saying, like, we don't have enough pitching. And they've kind of ended up back where we originally thought they were. Good team. I thought the Scott Efros deal was a great trade for them, especially yeah. with the in injury to Michael King, which is a pretty significant injury. And the Yankees, you know, I think he'll be. I think I think Efros is going to end up being a bigger factor than the Yankees, possibly than even than even Montes, to be honest. Um, so they're going to make the playoffs. They're going to have a bye. They're going to be in the DS, and I guess we'll we'll find out a lot more in October. All right, Matt and I are going to come back, and we're going to do a deep dive into three teams that are interesting to us: the Phillies, the Braves. And the Twins, before we did that, I wanted to offer a brief update on a topic we talked about a couple of weeks ago because I found it very funny. On our July 8th episode, we talked about Miguel Cabrera and how he had a 403 batting average on balls in play, which was like historically high. And every Tigers fan on the internet uh, claimed to me that this was purposeful and that he knew he didn't have any power, so he wasn't going to try to hit for weak fly balls. Instead, he was going to use his all-time elite high and make contact and just like spray line drives around. And we talked about this and I think we came away with like, we could see it. There's like maybe some validity to it. Uh, since then he's got nine hits and a 148 <laughs> average on balls in play. I know he's not healthy. I know he's banged up right now, uh, but man, you don't usually see it turn in that direction so quickly. <laughs> I thought everybody needed to know that. We'll take a break. We'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike and Matt. We are going to talk about three teams who are pretty interesting to us in terms of how they came out of the deadline and what it means for them for the rest of the season. The first one would be the defending world champion Atlanta Braves. And I think because of the way the Mets got off to a great start to the season, people have sort of written off the division for a while, but Braves are only three and a half games out behind the Mets. They're actually uh, about to start a five-game series head-to-head starting today, Thursday through Sunday. They've got seven more games after that, including uh, three more, the second-to-last series of the season, September 30 to October 2nd. The Braves, to me, are very clearly not afraid of the Mets, and I like a lot of the moves they made. You know, they went out and got Jake Odorizzi to add to their starting rotation depth. Uh, They got Rysel Iglesias. We're going to talk about that one because that one is a nuts trade. Uh, Robbie Grossman for their outfield. And, you know, you look at what they've done. They've added support to a team that already looks great. And Charlie Morton, who had a pretty rough start to the season, a 567 ERA in his first dozen starts, a 240 ERA. In his last nine starts, like, I'm in on the Braves. I think the Braves have a real decent shot of topping the Mets in the East here. I think I said this in the, the podcast probably six weeks ago, which is basically like, I think the Braves have a better roster than the Mets, but the Mets built a lead. And, you know, that might be enough to sort of, you know, hold hold off Atlanta. But I think Atlanta even did more to improve their team at the deadline. The Iglesias thing happened at the last minute and was kind of out of nowhere and is pretty significant, and it was a little bit of like, wait, whoa, what just happened? I mean, I cannot remember a kind of a salary dump trade like this in recent, you know. In the first year of the deal, that's the thing. He signed this four-year deal last winter, and they dumped him in in August. Who does that? Yeah, and I mean, so Iglesias, you know, it's a big contract for a reliever. You know, he's, he's probably not, you know, the absolute elite tier, but he's, if he's not, you know, he's not tier one, he's comfortably in tier two. His peripherals are this year suggest that he's basically the same pitcher he's always been. And I mean, one thing the Braves have done a really good job is they've like locked up their stars to long-term contracts, which gives them a lot more flexibility to kind of do some of these moves where like they're they're eating a lot of salary here. But like last week, they just signed Austin Riley for 10 years at $21 million a year. Like for a guy who's looking like a superstar, that's a pretty reasonable deal. They obviously have Acuna on sort of like a famously reasonable deal. Matt Olson they signed to a long-term deal. So like when you have all these stars locked up, like, yeah, you can you can float Iglesias, you know, at whatever it is, $15 million a year. And they have Jansen making $16 million a year this year, which is a lot for two relievers, but Jansen's a free agent this year. So this basically tells me Kenley Jansen will probably not be back in Atlanta next year. But for right now, their bullpen looks stellar. Their lineup is very good. Um, it's going to be an interesting race between them and the Mets to avoid that, you know, as we talked about, to try and avoid that that series with the Padres. Now, no one wants to play that. Even if they get to play at home, they don't want to play that three-game series against the Padres. I, I really get a kick out of uh, the way the Atlanta offense works, right? Because you've got old-school Brian Snicker and old-school Ron Washington, and yet this team has the second-most home runs in baseball and, uh, like, a bottom-five 
strikeout rate. Yeah, they have the third highest strikeout rate. They do not, as of at least the other day, have a single bunt hit, not one, for the entire year. Oh, I'm being told now they have one bunt hit for the entire year. What is going on in the sense that Ronald Acuna Jr. has not hit in like a month? He has a league average line right now, which is not what you'd expect. Um, yeah, I honestly don't know. And I've been meaning to look a little deeper on that because it's like, yeah. I think he's now gone like 80 something at bats without a home run, which is the second, I think I saw on the broadcast, the second longest streak in his career as a homer in basically a calendar month, um, which is kind of, it's almost kind of scary if you're, if you're the Mets, it's like, oh, they're doing this with the Cunha doing nothing. Granted, I mean, Austin Riley just had one of the best months in recent history. Yeah. <laughs> so presumably most likely what will happen is Riley will cool off and that will just be just in time for Cunha to to start get it going, but it's a really well-rounded team, and um, you know, kudos for them to for uh, uh, making that move for Iglesias last minute. Interesting, that was the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Perry Manazi or Manazi and the Angels GM used to work for the Braves. Yeah, so it was interesting how sure that just kind of came together, came together at the last second. But you know who the Angels got back, right? Jesse Chavez, who's 38 and has been traded more times than anybody in history. He's he's useful guy but he's just a guy and tucker davidson who has an era of like six so it's clearly like we don't want to pay him anymore i have no idea what the angels are doing they, they i'm convinced they have to trade shelly otani this winter it's amazing how quickly the tide has turned for me on that where it's like he's otani you'll never find another otani and now it's like they're not going to be any good next year they need to trade him this winter i, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves I think, yeah but that's, that's, a, that's a whole topic for another day yeah. and i've got some theories on that but we'll, we'll save that for that'll be a teaser we'll save that for another day Okay, I think the Braves are going to, I guess I can't say they're going to overtake the Mets because if the Mets have a fully healthy Jacob deGrom, that's really, really good and they have the advantage. But I'm really interested to see the five-game series that is about to happen uh, this weekend. Uh, Our team, too, is also in the National League East. The Phillies, who I didn't really think about this until I looked at the standings today. There is a two-team race for the last wild card, right? The first spot's going to go to the Braves or the Mets if they overtake them. The second spot is going to go to the Padres. And the third spot, it's the Phillies and the Cardinals, and that's it. I'm extremely out on the Giants, right? The Giants are five and a half games out. The Phillies are a half game up on the Cardinals. Well, it's also the Brewers, right? Because the Brewers, I think it's sort of like the Cardinals or Brewers are going to win the Central. And so it's like... Well, Cardinals or Brewers, but it's yeah, so still it's, it's basically Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that um, you, you are a Mets aficionado. I assume you watched some of the Mets Nationals game last night. And I know it ended up being like 9-5, but the game was not that close in any way. The Phillies have 11 more games against the smoldering husk of the Washington Nationals. And I think we saw that come into play last year after the Nationals also had a sell-off, after the Cubs also had a sell-off. If you get to play that many late-season games against a team like that, that's kind of a big advantage, I think. It is, although I did a little bit of a dive on the schedule this this morning. And there's a lot of schedule weirdness because, you know, it's the... The, the Nationals are probably, are, I guess, are the weakest team right now. But after the moves the Reds made, I'm not sure the Reds, despite the fact that they're in third place in the uh, in the uh, NL Central right now, I'm not sure the Reds, having traded away Luis Castillo, Tyler Malley, Brandon Drury, am I forgetting anyone? I don't think so. I'm not sure the Reds are that much better. And so I was looking at it, sort of saying, okay, well, do the Brewers and the the uh, Cardinals get to beat up on the the Reds and also the Cubs. And actually, as it turns out, they both have a total of 16 games left against the uh, Reds and Cubs. The, the Actually, the, the Brewers have 10 against the Reds, 6 against the Cubs. The Cardinals have 8 and 8 against each of them. Uh, according to Fangraphs, the Cardinals actually have the easiest remaining strength of schedule in all of the National League. So 
they seem to be pretty well positioned to uh, make a playoff spot. But yes, the, the, the eleven games against the Nationals. If you're the if you're the Phillies, what are you thinking? Are you like we have to win nine of those games? Like what's a, what's like the reasonable number where you're like anything less is like a huge disappointment? I think I think it's nine. For the record, we forgot Tommy Pham got traded from Cincinnati, but he's not a difference maker at this point. Not only that, I, I'm I'm with you, right? But not only that, I feel like. If the Phillies want to do more than just get to the playoffs, and don't forget, they're going to get Bryce Harper back at some point. Uh, you you got to nail it down before the last weekend of the season or, or the last series of the season because their biggest advantage over most other teams is that they have Aaron Nola and they have Zach Wheeler as a really good front too. If you use those guys in the last two games of the season, you're not going to have them to start the wildcard series. And in the best of three series, like that is their main advantage. And they've made some moves. They actually made more moves today. So they traded for David Robertson, which I really liked. He's a very good reliever. They traded for Noah Syndergaard, which... I don't know. I know we have this perception of what Noah Syndergaard is, but 2022 Noah Syndergaard is a very different pitcher than we remember with the Mets. Uh, they traded for Brandon Marsh, who has not hit, but is a really good defensive center fielder, which we, we know they need. And uh, they traded for Edmundo Sosa, who's a pretty good defensive shortstop. And just like an hour ago, they activated John Segura from the, the uh, injured list and they released Didi Gregorius, who is been kind of a flop on both sides of the ball and that's actually a really interesting thing if you look at the Phillies we talked so much about how dreadful their defense was going to be and we were right (laughs) I mean for the first two months it was awful and if you look at their monthly like outs above average ranking so in April they were 17th in May they were dead last the the May Phillies was it was a really tough watch and then in June they were about average and in July they were the ninth best defense. Now we're talking small sample size and all that, and that's fine. But it's not as much of like kind of a joke as it used to be, and especially now, less Gregorius, more Marsh. Um, the you know you get you get back to where you can be a competent defense, even if Castellanos isn't that good and Schwarber's not that good. Like they're looking up, I think. It's an interesting team. They basically they've they've they had a lot of places where it was easy for them to improve, and they did like Brendan Marsh. He doesn't hit, but like he's gonna, he's better than what they had in center field. So like it's almost like an upgrade by default. They've also gotten rid of a lot of name players that were just not performing. You mentioned Gregorius, Javier Familia, They DFA'd last week. Odubel Herrera. They DFA'd last week. So it's like it's a very different roster they're putting out there. Um, so and then Harper, it's hard, like Harper's the X factor, right? Because like it's a hand injury. You just don't know what he's gonna be when he gets back. But like you. You assume it's going to be Bryce Harper, and in which case, like, I like their roster better than the Cardinals right now, I think. I but do, that, too. I do, too. I think, and, and they're trending up, right? Like, Castellanos has been a disaster this year, but over the last two weeks, he's actually been starting to hit, you know? Like, Alec Boehm had an all-time July. I don't actually believe he is a 434, 457, 632 hitter, uh, but he looked fantastic. You get Harper back, the bullpen's, like, actually pretty pretty solid i hate to say it but we laughed at them when they fired joe girardi saying oh, i won't matter you can't make this team better well we might have been wrong on that one <laughs> yeah it's it's you know castellanos is fascinating to me i was actually looking i've been shocked at how bad he's been because he's been like one of the most consistent players you can imagine if you look at his baseball savant page for the last six years his expected weight on base which is basically just you know uh just quality of contact has basically been between like 365 and 378 in every season over the past six seasons, like incredibly consistent. And then this year it's like, you know, right around 300. He homered yesterday, big homer for them to beat the Braves. So maybe he's coming around. If he's coming around, 
that changes things. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there was a lot of talk with him where it's like, oh, well, the ball isn't flying. I've lost some home runs. And it's like, well, okay, that didn't hurt Schwarber, who plays in the same ballpark. It didn't hurt Harper, who plays in the same ballpark. And as you just alluded to, all of the underlying metrics saying you're just playing worse. <laughs> like, I know every hitter wants to find a reason that is something's happening, but he just, I don't know why, but he was not he was not playing well. I'm thinking we're both saying the same thing, that we like them over the Cardinals, right? Because I look at the Cardinals... And they've gotten to this point based on like incredibly good seasons from Goldschmidt and Arenado, which in some sense might be hard to keep up. And the starting pitching rotations were additions were fine, but I don't know, not earth shattering. I mean, it's going to be it's it's like it's still going to be close, right? It's not like it's not you know this crazy you know they're they're a half game apart from each other. The Phillies are up a half game on the Philly the Cardinals right now, so it's like it's still going to be close. I don't, I don't expect the Phillies to run away with it, but as you mentioned, they are very motivated if they have a chance to try and clinch a couple days early more so than than the cardinals would be because cardinals it's sort of like that's not they're not going to beat you with their with their their one-two punch at the top of the rotation all right the third team i want to talk about would be the minnesota twins who are still leading the american league central they're up one game on cleveland they're up two games on the white Sox. uh right now as the third seed they'd host the rays though obviously a lot can change and as I was thinking about this more, I was like, you know, I really liked what the Twins did. Like, they had very clear needs. Their pitching staff was super thin. Well, they went out and they got three pitchers. They got Jorge Lopez from the Orioles for the next two and a half years and Tyler Molly from the Reds for the next year and a half and Michael Fulmer, who's a rental. And I wasn't even going to bring up Sandy Leone, who's just like a depth catcher, except he doubled in the first two runs yesterday. So <laughs> according to Dan Samborski, who does the Zips projection system at Fangraphs, no team added more to their playoff odds than the Twins did. It doesn't mean they improved by the most. It's clearly the Padres, uh, but the Padres didn't like meaningfully change their playoff position, whereas I think the Twins did because they're just one game up on Cleveland. It helps that the White Sox did absolutely nothing. They traded for Jake Diekman. And for Cleveland, should point out, we all got a lot of run at him, kind of laughing at the Rockies from not making any trades. The only thing Cleveland did was, wait for it, trade Sandy Leone to the Twins, who doubled in the first two rounds yesterday. I didn't even notice that they optioned out Fran Mil Reyes over the weekend because he's had a really rough year. Cleveland's outfield and DH has a 667 OPS, better than only Texas, Miami, Detroit, and Oakland. Matt, what is this now? Year seven we're talking about why they haven't traded for an outfielder? Like, I, it's it's a meme. I think it's a meme. I know we're supposed to be talking about the Twins here, but the inability of their competitors to add factors into this. Yeah, I mean, good. the Twins, you know, like if nothing else, they're, they're good for them, right? It, it, if, although at this point, if they don't win the division, that would be a yeah. huge disappointment. I was shocked. The, the I was I was not surprised the Guardians didn't do much because that's just kind of been their mo. I was surprised the White Sox didn't do anything. They have a pretty weak farm system at this point, so they probably weren't really dealing from a position of strength. But this is where something like the Iglesias deal, like I'm sort of like I'm curious, like how that yeah, I kind of mentioned, you know, maybe a, a friend a relationship between Manazian and the Braves, where it's like, why were the White Sox in on that, right? It's like. That's just a salary dump, but you wonder like when the you know GMs and team relationships come in with something like that because theoretically any team, you know, almost any team if they're willing to take the money could have beaten the trade and in, in players back. Um, but I was surprised they didn't do anything if nothing else of just like trying to to eat salary of someone who might be an upgrade in any number of spots where the White Sox could use an upgrade. Yeah, you don't want to do something just to say that you did something, but also you're two games out of first place and you didn't actually solve any of your problems. So anyway, the Twins had a real clear need, right? They needed pitching like super badly, especially in the rotation. So their starters had thrown to the third fewest batters in baseball. And one of the teams under them is Tampa Bay, who barely uses a rotation in the first place. They have like 
a decent top three now, I think. Like, I love Joe Ryan. He's had a really good year. Uh, Sonny Gray's been a pretty good ad. Chris Archer, Dylan Bundy. Yeah, you, you need someone better if you're going to go into a three-game wild card. And I know that, that Molly has a 440 ERA, but, like, all all the underlying indicators are better than that. He's a 322 expected ERA. Um, Carlos Correa had this great quote when he was asked about him. <laughs> you probably saw this, right? And he's like, well, I, I don't know. I went to his baseball savant page, and I saw a lot of red and, like, the way this works is like, you know, the, the good stats are red isn't hot and the bad ones are blue isn't cold. And he's like, I saw a lot of red, I'm like giant heart signs for Carlos one Correa. of us, one yeah, of us for real. Um, you know, Molly's been kind of on the breakout lists for the last couple of years. He had a really good year last year uh, playing in one of, if not the worst parks to pitch in. Like Cincinnati is a brutal park for pitchers. Minnesota is much better. Um, their infield defense isn't good, but their outfield defense can be quite good when everyone's healthy. So I, I kind of, I saw people saying, well, they didn't put themselves up to where they can get through New York and Houston and go to a World Series. And I'm like, that's probably true. But so what? Like, if you're going to make that the goal every year, you're never going to get there. Your goal should be when you're leading the division and you have no pitching, win the division, get to October. I think they did that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the past, you've written like various versions in the free agents in like the offseason, you've written sort of like, here are the like, off-brand versions of these superstars where it's like, yeah, you want this guy, but this guy is basically as good and you don't know anything about him. I feel like Tyler Molly's like kind of that guy. Like Luis Castillo and Frankie Montes got like a ton of hype. But like you strip away, especially including, I think they have the exact same amount of team control like through next year. Like they're very similar pitchers. And the thing about Molly is like he actually has the stuff that like it wouldn't shock me in a playoff game if he did have a start where he was like, Six innings, ten strikeouts, like shuts you down. Like he's a strikeout guy. His issue is that he can sometimes be a little walk prone. You want to make sure that like you have maybe have someone ready to go, <laughs> a long a long man ready to go. But he's he's legit. And over the last couple of years, he's been about as good as Castillo and Montes. No, if you just look at like wins above replacement, that's true. Now some of that's about you know injuries and being available. And Castillo had that really weird like bad stretch. I think to start last year. So. I don't necessarily think he's as good as them, but I don't think the gap there is as large as people want it to be. Because I'm, I'm with you. And then you think about what they did in the bullpen. Jorge Lopez has been one of the best stories of the year. And we've seen this story so many times. Mediocre swingman stops throwing his bad pitch and starts throwing his good pitch more and adds five ticks to his you know <laughs> miles per hour. And then he's not a rental. They get him for next year. And also the next year, already nailed down a save in his first game. And now you look at their bullpen, right? So Lopez is there. Um... Griffin Jacks has been a pretty good story. I think he was your guy a couple weeks ago, throwing sliders all the time. Uh, Duran, who's throwing 175 miles an hour, is really good. They got Michael Fulmer, who I, I kind of forgot to mention, who's like a decently usable guy. You move like Duffy and Emilio Pagan into lower leverage roles. You still have Caleb Tealbar. I don't think this is a great pitching staff by any means, but this is one you can go to the playoffs with. Like they clearly said, here's what we need to do. We're going to do it. They gave away interesting prospects, but not anybody who's like, top five for them like i'm i'm into what the twins just did here definitely and they again although now if they don't win the division it'll be a huge disappointment but oh, yeah. i think that i think now they're pretty well positioned to do it yeah you don't go out and get carlos correa and then not win the division again especially when nobody else is you know trying to get pieces to help you help beat you in the division all right we're gonna take a quick break we're gonna come back and i will tell you about my guy and i will learn about matt's guy <laughs> i can't wait to see 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We always like to delve into a guy you should know about a little bit more. My guy is pretty fun because he's actually a member of a very famous sports family, and he is essentially the starting left fielder for maybe the best team in baseball right now, despite the fact he's on his third organization of the season already. Trace Thompson, who has a 139 OPS plus for the Dodgers, 495 slugging. He was only acquired by the Dodgers in May to sub for Mookie Betts when Mookie Betts got hurt, and he's like the starting left fielder now. Before we talk about his long career path, I did want to mention his famous sports family. His dad, uh, Michael Thompson, the number one overall pick in the 1978 NBA draft, is a two-time NBA title winner on the Lakers in the 80s. His brother, also named Michael, briefly played for the Cleveland Cavaliers, and his other brother, the most famous brother, Clay Thompson, four-time NBA champ with the Warriors. Also, Trace Thompson has been in major leagues for a couple years quite the family he was drafted in 2009 by the white Sox and had a pretty good debut when he finally got there in 2015 he won 47 ops plus in 44 games so after the season he got traded to the dodgers in what's now kind of a fascinating trade because this was the trade where the dodgers got frankie montas that's right frankie montas was a dodger prospect never played for them he got traded to oakland later on this was the deal where the white Sox got todd frazier and the reds got a couple of prospects so the dodgers identified this guy we thought okay he can be a good outfielder and in 2016 he had 13 first half home runs pretty good but his season ended on july 10th with a back injury he had a pretty bad year the next year while he's probably coming back from the back injury they cut him loose in spring of 2018 and then here comes the odyssey between 2019 and 2021, he went through the Yankees, the A's, the White Sox, Cleveland, Arizona, the Cubs for 15 total major league games, all of which brings us back to this year. And as I said, he's been on three teams already. In March, after the lockout, he end, he signed a minor league deal with San Diego, got into six major league games. They cut him loose on May 10th. A week later, he signs with the Tigers got into zero major league games. That's right, the Tigers, who have the worst offense in baseball, did not find room for him. They traded him to the Dodgers on June 20th for cash. And since his debut in LA, he has the number one line drive rate in baseball, <laughs> ahead of Michael Brantley, ahead of Freddie Freeman. And I'm so happy to see him because you might remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how StatCast could measure bat speed. And I presented the top 10 and it was mostly guys you thought it would be, right? Julio Rodriguez and Jazz Chisholm and John Carlos Stanton. And Trace Thompson was on that list. And I remember going, huh, that's kind of weird. And here we are talking about him a couple weeks later with a 139 OPS plus playing left field for the best team in baseball. Baseball is a super weird sport sometimes. This is one of them. And it's really cool to see how he's come like full circle all the way back to the Dodgers here. Good for Trace Thompson. That's all I can say. It's a, it's, I mean, that's a journey, right? You say you yeah. drafted in 2009. Nine. <laughs> oh man, good for him. All right, so my guy, got? my, my guy. <laughs> I don't think I've done this. I think I did this once before last year, uh, once before and it was last season when I went with uh, Griffin Conine, a minor leaguer with 
a crazy, absurd stat line. Well, I'm going to go with a minor leaguer again because this is the craziest stat line of the season. You know, the Reds' farm system is getting a lot of attention this week because they've made a series of trades to uh, bring in a lot of big prospects. They brought in Melvin Marte in the trade for Luis Castillo. They, you know, been getting a lot of credit for, hey, if you're going to do a dump, like, bring back talent. They've done really well by all means. For... Now, here's a player. If you scroll through their top 30 prospects on MLB.com and MLB Pipeline, lower down on their list, you will find someone <laughs> who is already in the organization who might be the most interesting prospect of, their, of them all. I'm talking about... Is, is this going to be some pitcher for, like, Dayton? Like, where are we going here? I'm going to their number 28 prospect. Okay. Um, right-handed pitcher named Joe Boyle for the Dayton Dragons. Oh, wow. Look at me. <laughs> Six foot seven, 240 pounds, a fifth round pick out of Notre Dame in 2020. Arguably the most unhittable pitcher, emphasis on hittable, in the major leagues, in the, in the in professional baseball this year. Joe Boyle has made 16 starts. <laughs> I'm looking at his stats now. <laughs> he has pitched 68 innings. He has allowed 21 hits in 68 innings of play. He has a 1.97 ERA. It's a pretty remarkable number. He also has 54 walks and 114 strikeouts. If there was everyone, anyone who ever embodied, I guess, the wild thing Rick Vaughn, um, it is Joe Boyle of the Cincinnati Reds who's pitching for Dayton. His baseball reference page is a wild ride because now they have their college stats on there. This is a guy who in college couldn't even throw strikes. And... They, but he could throw 102 miles an hour, according to MLB Pipeline. And so basically, they're like, we'll try and figure him out. And he's actually gotten a little better as the years have gone by in terms of reducing the walks. You know, uh, last year it was at 9.2 walks per nine. This year it's 7.1. But hey, that's better than his last year at Notre Dame when he was walking 14 hitters per nine innings. So I will admit, I have not seen Joe Boyle play. My good uh, my colleague and friend Jason Catania brought him to my attention. But now I am fascinated by Joe Boyle, and I look forward to following his career from here on in. Man, you told me you were going to have a deep cut, and uh, man, you you delivered. That is um, an app. I don't suppose you've looked this up. Is that anything historical about like lowest hits per nine? Is that something we could find out there? No, but that's something that we should we should look up. Yeah, he, uh, he actually uh, go. It was it was a little better until three days ago. He actually gave up three hits in his last outing, which is the most number of hits he's given up in an outing all season. Three. Um, so uh, before his last outing, it was like uh, eighteen hits allowed and fifteen starts. So now he's got twenty one and sixteen starts. I am uh, like furiously trying to uh, Google and um, yeah, okay. Two hundred and forty pounds. Okay. For next week, we can find out if it's historic. So this will be a teaser for our listeners for next week's podcast. Oh, I like that. I like that. If anybody's got an answer to that, please hit us up because that that's that is the. I'm trying to figure out if you could find a deeper cut, uh, and honestly, I I don't know that you could. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.